How many of you recall um, hearing me preach a seven-minute sermon? Well, first of all, and most of you know this, but anytime we uh, we celebrate communion and we give uh, space and time and honor to that celebration, uh, there will almost always be less time for the sermon, and particularly if the guy doing communion just goes on and on. But I'll have, a, I'll have a talk with him about that. But we are in 2 Peter, and we're continuing our study. And actually, seriously, one, one thing I like about the fact that we're going through a book and continuing is that uh, we get to take bite-sized chunks week by week uh, without feeling the need to finish because we're going to be coming back to continue. And last week, we looked at this in 2 Peter 2.9. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. And we looked at God's preparation of rescue for the godly from temptation, of how practically and, and specifically and in what detail God has prepared help and strength and power and a way of escape when we face temptation. But that second part, and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. And he goes on, and I'll try to read this quickly. And especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires, despise authority, daring, self-will, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesty. For as angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed. Suffering wrong is the wages of doing wrong. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you. Having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, Having a heart trained in greed, accursed children forsaking the right way. They've gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he received a rebuke for his own transgression, for a mute donkey speaking with the voice of a man, restrained the madness of the prophet. These are springs without water and mist driven by a storm, for whom the dark blackness has been reserved. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For what, by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. We're going to pause there. And, and the recognition, again, as, as I mentioned last week, there are sections of Scripture that are not fun to read. There are sections of Scripture that are not just uplifting promises and uplifting joy and uplifting uh, positive things to say. And this is one of those passages where God, in, in His wisdom, has clarified the face of evil, has described the heart and the mind and the life of rebellion against God. And with that fresh in mind, uh, go back to 2 Timothy 3 that Joe read for us earlier. And let me just pull.
pull out a few of the descriptions here. He says, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. And, and these two passages and several other passages we could go to, part of, part of what I would, I would say is that God is truthful. He's truthful about identity. And we talked about this before. Every one of us, I bet, every one of us knows a few non-believers, maybe many non-believers, who, who are as nice or as kind or as good as most of the believers we know. And there have even been a couple of people I know through life that I would actually say, you know what? They could come to our church and show us how it's done in terms of behavior. So God is not saying everybody looks like this list who does not trust in Jesus Christ. But God is revealing the heart of that rebellion. That, that someone can have a pleasant demeanor and still at the core of that heart, there is still a fist shaking toward God saying, I refuse to submit to you. I, I know I shared this story, so I won't go into a lot of detail, but a young man in the Marine Corps many, many years ago who admitted that even if God did a miracle right in front of him, and, and we talked about that, and it was like, if God did that right now, would he surrender his life to God? And he laughed and said, no. He admitted it. Because I want to be my own God. And he just happened to be more honest than most nice people. That God is in these two lists of, of 2 Peter 3 and here in 2 Peter 2. He is revealing the truthful heart of rebellion. The truthful heart that dishonors holy things while giving attention and, and treasuring the unholy thing. And so part of it for you and I, uh, and again, there's many things we're going to get out of this passage over the next week or two, couple of weeks, but one of the things we get to get is the recognition, Father, I want to be truthful with you. I want to be truthful about sin. And for us as believers, the place to start, truly, you know this already, is to start being truthful about sin in us. So I can recognize sin in the world when it's ugly and when it's hostile to the gospel and when it's hateful toward believers. And, and just like these obvious lists, that looks real clear. That's rebellion. That's hatred. That's ungodliness. But the part of it for you and I is this wisdom. Father, if you're truthful about sin, I don't want to pull punches and become dishonest when I'm looking at my own sin. I don't want to start justifying my sin. I don't want to explain my sin like Saul. I don't want to give you the reasons why I was obligated to sin. I want to call sin, sin. And I'm going to 
recognize that it is just as ugly in me as anything in this world. But I'm forgiven. And we never, we never get to forget that part of it. So we just celebrated communion. And, and as we studied Hebrews back in, in our Sunday school this morning, the recognition that this sacrifice once for all time purchased my perfect forgiveness and perfect my and purchased my perfect cleansing. So I won't be standing in front of God, neither will you. None of us will be standing in front of God patting ourselves on the back. Patting ourselves on the back. That's interesting. A little bit of agency. But that recognition that God sees my sin and it's ugly to him, but I'm forgiven. And that God sees my sin and he sees the way of escape so that I'm not obligated to continue in it. And part of that freedom from obligation, when Romans 8 says that we have no obligation to the flesh, when I see these ugly things in myself, or you see these ugly things in yourself, where again, we don't have to mince words. We get to talk directly to the Father and say, Father, my sin is horrible and ugly. And we still get to do this that Paul said, and thank God I'm not where I once was, but I'm not yet finished. So I still keep finding the evidence of unfinished sin in me. And I get to deal with it, and you have prepared that way of escape that we discussed and talked about last week. Now here in 2 Peter 2, he gives a couple of, of examples. He says in verse 15, Forsaking the right way, they've gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the ways, wages of unrighteousness. Now, just a real quick background on who Balaam is. So, Balaam is a prophet of God, but he was not a Jew. He was never a part of Israel. Balaam was a prophet of God already there in Moab. And he was genuinely a prophet of God. And he spoke for God. And the king of Moab wanted him, when he saw this horde of Jews coming across the desert and, and heading toward Moab, and it, it intimidated him. He thought, these guys are going to wipe us out. They're going to overcome us. And he contacted Balaam and he says, look, I will pay you anything you want. He basically kept upping the ante. I'll pay you gold. I'll pay you silver. Because I know you represent God. And I know when you bless somebody, they're truly blessed. And when you curse somebody, they're truly cursed. So what I'll do is I'll pay you to curse these, Israel, these Jews coming. I'll pay you to curse them. And at first, Balaam says, no, no. Uh, the way God works this thing is I can only say what he tells me to say. And that's why you see my blessings as effective. And that's why you see my cursings as effective. Because they come from him. So no matter what you pay me, and even he even says this, you would be wasting your money. There's nothing, you don't have enough to pay me to speak a cursing against these people. And even prophesize, God's going to bless them. They are blessed of God. And he keeps making sort of half deals with the king. Well, I'll come with you and I'll look at them. And, and the king of Moab basically says, you come look at these Jews with me. And, and then maybe there while you're standing there with you'll decide to curse them. And every time he does, he refuses to curse them. 
And so it's, it could be confusing to go, why is Balaam being used as this bad example? Because he gets on his donkey to go to the next place where he's going to look at the Jews and meet with the king of Moab. And on his way, the donkey sees an angel blocking the way. And some of you are familiar with this story. But the donkey sees that angel and he veers off to the side. And Balaam beats him and tries to get him moving forward. And so the angel gets closer and boxes them in more. And, and the donkey goes to the side again. And Balaam beats it again and tries to get it to go straight. And finally, the donkey bangs up against the wall, probably smashes Balaam's foot against the wall. And now he's really beaten that donkey. And then God grants that donkey a voice to speak. And the donkey says, I've been your faithful donkey for years. Have you ever known me to veer away from the path? Have you ever known me to be this way? And if you haven't, why are you beating me, basically? Why aren't you paying attention? And that's when God opens his eyes and he sees Balaam sees the angel. And the angel says, you should thank your donkey for your life because if you had kept coming, I was going to slay you. So it can be a confusing, if you read Numbers 22, 23, 24, 25, it can be confusing. Why is Balaam a bad guy when he never spoke the curse against Israel? And once he saw the angel, he stopped and said, okay, well, got it. I won't be cursing Israel. But we know this. We know from, from 31, Numbers 31, that Balaam told the king of Moab how to bring Israel down. And we have in Deuteronomy the same idea. He wasn't going to speak a curse, but he said, you know what, king? I can't speak a curse against these people, but I can tell you how to bring them down. You get a bunch of beautiful women and you send them among the tribes of Israel and you get them to commit adultery and you get them to pursue relationships with these women and you get them through their hearts and their minds and their bodies and I don't have to curse them God will curse them and it happened Moab sent women by the thousands among the tribes of Israel and God sent a plague on Israel because of their infidelity but without ever speaking the curse, Balaam did something even more destructive. He didn't just speak some words. He planned how to bring thousands of men and women down into sin. And it's worth remembering, he had been a true prophet of God. So this passage in, in 2 Peter 2 started out by warning us, there will be false prophets. There have always been false prophets. There will continue to be false prophets. And that we get to recognize the truth. I want to be able to see the reality with God of sin. I want to be able to see the reality of truth and of holiness and of righteousness. I want to be able to see the, the truth of my identity in Christ so that I cannot be fooled by a false prophet. So I cannot be pulled aside from the, from the path by false teaching or heresy or enticement to sin. And I, I say this real, real frequently. I, I almost want to ask for a show of hands, but I won't. The, the show of hands I would want to ask for is how many people right now are involved in some kind of partnership for spiritual growth? That beyond your... I can always count on you. That, 
that are involved in fellowship, men with other men, women with other men, women. Careful. That's almost a false teaching. Uh, couples with couples, children, teenagers with other children and teenagers and teachers. That every one of us needs to be involved in some fellowship for the purposes of spiritual growth. And that we not have this mindset of, of Lone Ranger isolationism. Well, you know, I just got the word, it's just me and Jesus. That that recognition that no one gets insight into my life, I get insight mode into their life, and we can all stay blind in isolation. That this passage over here that I point to pretty frequently, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good works. And it starts by not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together. So I'm sorry. Not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together. And that means you and I need to be assembling together where that can happen. Where it's not simply that you come and you get to hear someone else teach, but where there is a one another aspect to the fellowship. Where it is brothers and sisters encouraging and challenging each other, but also checking in on each other's thinking. Just this past week, I, I had a young man who basically admitted that one of the reasons he likes to do everything in isolation is because he doesn't like it when other people correct him. Well, nobody likes that, I hope. But we get to say, but it's wise. And so part of the passage that Joe read for us out of, out of uh, 1 Timothy 3, 2 Timothy 3, is the recognition that that challenge to overcome false teaching ends in the Word of God. And not isolated in the Word of God, but that we share the body in the Word of God. So we're going to go ahead and wrap it up for today because the sermon's not done. So we'll come back next week. So it doesn't matter how far you've traveled. Uh, we expect you to be back here next week. But that recognition that we get to recognize, Father, I want to speak the truth about sin. I want to speak the truth about God. I want to speak the truth about holiness. And I don't want to mix words and recognizing that I am challenged and called to keep growing. And that I, I take no examples of getting away with it. So one thing we didn't talk about is that people would even use angels as an excuse to rebel. People would use false teachers as an excuse to rebel. You and I have the power of the Holy Spirit that protects us from an obligation to veer aside no matter what anybody else does, no matter what anybody else teaches, that we keep tasting the truth, loving the truth, finding joy and growing in the truth. I said that during our communion too. And I, I really see this as such an important thing. Our life in Christ gets to be a life of joy. Now, that does not mean we don't have sorrow. Jesus said he prayed that we would have his joy. And he prayed that on the worst night of his life. So that what Jesus was able to joyfully celebrate was not erased or diminished by what he grieved and sorrowed and sweat drops of blood over. Both were true. That we are free to grieve in a sad moment. We are free to go through a season of mourning over a loss or a death. We are free to recognize the difficulties of, of our lives truthfully 
and still recognize we have majestic things to celebrate that are worthy of joy, even through tears of sorrow, even through loss and grief. So I'm going to encourage you, challenge you, be deciding this week that you're going to speak the truth in the grammar of God. The truth of sin in your life, the truth of destruction and rebellion you may see in others, but you're going to speak the truth because you love the day of salvation. 2 Corinthians 6, 1 and 2 says, this is the day of salvation. So in this period, the most rebellious, the most sinful, the most ungodly person we know, God is still desiring that they come into the body. Let's pray for them, and let's pray together right now. Father, I do thank you that you're a God of truth. And your word makes it real clear that you hate lying lips. And Father, we can lie in really subtle ways. And you know that better than anybody. So that when we sin, Father, we get to call it sin. When we rebel and choose our own way, we get to call it rebellion. When we revile holy things, we get to call it what it is. Father, when we desire our own Godhood, even for a moment, we get to call it idolatry. But Father, I thank you that for every man, woman, and child in this room who has put their faith in Jesus Christ, we get to call it what it is and confess it to you as sin. And then praise you and thank you. Praise you and thank you for perfect forgiveness. Father, that it is never your plan that we recognize sin and then go run and hide from you. That we recognize our rebellion or our shortcomings and then avoid you, but that we run to you for forgiveness. We've run to you for cleansing. And Father, we run to you for growth. I pray that that would be the mind and the heart of, of each one of us in this fellowship. That we run to you for growth right in the face of our own sin. That we do not accept the enemy's condemnation, but we accept your power to rule. We accept the life of Jesus Christ dwelling within us, who alone makes this growth possible. Our own strength, Father, will never be enough, so we choose the life and the power of Jesus Christ. And thank you that that is a joyful gift from you to us. We pray these things together, Father, in Jesus' name.